Hello, everybody. This is Mike Dizzy Dizzyri from Left Coast Pirates. We just completed a fantastic interview with a former pirate great. Part of what we do here at Left Coast Pirates is we pride ourselves on bringing you not only quality content, but also the best audio quality possible in our broadcasts. Unfortunately, during this interview, we were unaware of some of the technical feedback that we were receiving during the audio connection. Uh, we still, though, want to make sure that the great message that was brought through this interview is listened to and heard by all fans. So once again, you have our sincerest apologies for not the highest level of audio quality this time around, but we hope you still enjoy the podcast to its fullest. Just west of the Ward Place Gate from San Diego, California. He is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkoharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. Hello, Michael. How are you doing today? Good afternoon, Tommy. What's up? You know, we've been doing this summer interview series, and we just had June's interview with Dave Popkin, and it went really well. But we have the opportunity to interview someone from the Seton Hall past that we couldn't pass up on here, Mike. So you're telling me people actually want to be interviewed by LCP? Is this becoming like a, a regular thing? I'm not saying that, but we have this opportunity. We can't pass it up. I'm excited. This was the kind of player when I turned on the television to watch a game when I was out here and moved out here to San Diego that I was anticipating watching what he brought to the table. He was, he was exciting. He was energetic. Uh, it, it was a fun game to watch when this guy was having a good night. He was the North Jersey Player of the Year in 2010 out of Patterson Catholic High School. In his sophomore season at the Hall, he was the first Big East player to lead the nation in steals per game. He went on to set the Seton Hall mark for single-season steals and steals in a career. 2014 saw him make the second team all Big East. He was also Big East Defensive Player of the Year that year. He finished 12th on the all-time Pirates scoring list with 1,633 points. He's also had numerous stops in his professional career around the world and most recently was a member of Toronto's G League affiliate, the Raptors 905. And welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Fuquan Edwin. Fu, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. So Fuquan, you grew up in Passaic County. What made you decide to play your high school ball at Patterson Catholic? Was it the influence of former players such as Tim Thomas and Seton Hall's own Jordan Theater? Um, yeah, definitely. I think they both had an influence on um, my decision with going um, to Patterson Catholic. Definitely, um, you know, I was born and raised in Patterson. It, it was pretty uh, a weird situation, you know. Um, during my eighth grade year, you know, I didn't know what high school I was going to, so you know, I went, I went up to um, Don Bosco Prep. And, you know, that's where they was having a lot of summer league games at. And, you know, I was suing over Eastside High School. I actually put on the Eastside High School jersey. And that's when one of the Patterson Catholic coaches came up to me. He was like, yo, yo, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you're with Patterson Catholic. <laughs> you know, so I was like, oh, am I? All right. So I, I just wanted to play basketball, you know. And um, that's when he gave me a jersey, and, you know, and we took off from there. Yo, you really did take off. Coming out of high school, you ended up 
a hoop scoop top 100 ranked player, and you ended up the 2010 North Jersey Player of the Year. So you must have had schools coming for you. So who else besides Seton Hall offered you? Providence was very interested in me. Uh, Temple was very interested in me. Um, those are the only two schools that I actually took visits to. You know, and of course, Rutgers was uh, another local school. So, you know, I was keeping my eye on them. But Seton Hall just definitely attracted me. You know, the coaching staff, you know, first with Bobby. Then when I met Kevin Willard, you know, it, my decision was just, you know, I was definitely with Seton Hall. You know, he was a good guy. And I liked his personality when I first met him. You know, and um, another thing that caught my eye was, you, was, you know, Jordan Theodore, you know, he was already there. And when I met those guys, man, you know, they welcomed me in like a little brother. And, you know, I knew Seton Hall was my home. You kind of beat me to my next question already. So you decided to come to Seton Hall when Bobby Gonzalez was there. So Bobby initially recruited you, and then Kevin had to kind of come back around and re-recruit you. So we're always interested in kind of seeing the difference between Bobby and Kevin. What did Bobby do to, to kind of get you to come, and then what did Kevin have to say to get you to stay? You know, I heard a lot about Bobby coaching styles. You know, he was he was tough, and, you know, he liked to uh, get, get at it with the players. You know, it kind of boosted the players up and made them play harder. And, you know, that was kind of something that I liked. But then again, you know, Coach Kevin Willow was, you know, was like the total opposite, you know. But, again, when I met him and when I met Shaheen and everybody else, man, it was, it was just like, you know, those guys were just so great. And, you know, I, I just stayed with my decision, you know. it was, I, I didn't feel like it was like a risk at all, you know. I felt like I was home already, you know, even though the coaching staff had changed. Yeah, so I just felt like, you know, that was definitely my home. Well, when you showed up, you jumped into a real upperclassman heavy team. They had Jeff Robinson, Jeremy Hazell, Jamal Jackson, just to name a few. What was the dynamic of that team and how you meshed and how they meshed with Kevin Willard that first year? Oh, I, I think, you know, it was something new for those guys, you know, and it was something new for me, you know, coming out of high school. Uh, I feel like Coach Kevin Willard, his, his coaching style, you know, um, his workouts, just everything, you know, like he made us better instantly. And um, he pushed everyone. And, you know, even though, you know, of course, you know, Jeremy Hazel was our guy, you know, he made him work just as hard as us, made sure everybody was on time with workouts, you know, because, you know, with the, with the last coaching group, no knock on them, but, you know, I'm sure it was different from Coach Kevin Willard. Those guys who was already there had to adjust and, you know, had to, um, get rid of the bad habits, you know, with sometimes showing up to practices and, I mean, showing up late to practices and stuff like that, you know. So Coach Willard definitely um, brought everyone in, and we all had one goal, you know, and that was just to win. Makes sense. I mean, he's he's taken over the program. It's his first year. He's a younger coach. He probably kind of wants to put his stamp on, like you said, the discipline, the way that he wants to run his program. But that group had some success before Willard got there. They were 19 and 13. Uh, the year before, under Bobby, they kind of just missed the NCAA tournament. Was there a sense of failure in the locker room when that team finished a disappointing 13 and 18 overall in Kevin's first season? Um, I, I wouldn't say failure. You know, like I said, you know, it was a, it was a new coaching staff, and you know, everybody had to mesh with each other. You know, with the players, and, you know, we, you know, we had um, a fresh recruiting group coming in, like myself. You know, with Coach Kevin Willow bringing in all, all his coaching staff. You know, so I don't, I don't feel like it was a failure, but I don't know. I, I feel like we did pretty good. You know, with a new coaching staff. It must have hurt the team a little bit when Jeremy Hazell broke his wrist after the third game of that season. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, he was uh, he was he was definitely our captain. He led us on the court. You know, he was our main scorer. You know, but that was just an opportunity for 
other guys to step up, like myself. You know, just me, me being a freshman, I definitely got thrown in the fire. You know, I had to play a lot more minutes. But um, I feel like with Coach Willard, just, you know, his workouts and preparing us for the season, I felt like I was ready. You know, even though I was a, a freshman, I felt like I was tip-top shape and, you know, my game was at a high level. This answer don't got nothing to do with the question, but I remember, you know, that summer working out, and, you know, I was guarding Jeremy Azell, and this is something we laugh at to this day. You know, I might just hit him up on IG and just, you know, just mess with him a little bit. But I don't know. I play with my defensive intensity. I don't feel like he, he never had none like that, especially in practice, you know. So it kind of frustrated him a little bit. And I don't know. It made practice a lot better, and it made me better, too, just with my defense. And, you know, because him being one of, like, the Big East top scorer, you know, that's something that I, I, that was something I had to guard every day. You know? No, I, I remember Jeremy. Jeremy was electric. He was one of my favorite players uh, when I went to the games back during that, that time period. He could light it up on any given night. And it was, it was a spectacle to be at the Meadowlands when he would actually go off for a 30-plus point performance. But I, before we get into kind of your development as a player, you talked about and alluded to Kevin and his workouts. So I know Kevin is kind of renowned for his individual workouts with players. Kind of walk me through or tell me about some of those kind of workouts he did with you to develop your game from your freshman year into your sophomore season. Great question. One one thing is a player that I heard a lot was, you know, I couldn't dribble and I didn't I was I was positionless and I couldn't shoot. And and a Kevin Willow workout, you know, he's hand every single one of those things. Like you check the box on every one of those every day. You know, at the we lift we straight ball handling with Shaheen. Then we doing layups, rip throughs, catch at the elbow, rip through. I mean, nonstop. I mean, it's to the point where you're ready to pass out. And when you're ready to pass out, Coach Kevin looking for 30, 40 more minutes out of you, you know? So that was something that, and I'm sure to this day he's doing that. You know, I keep up with Miles Powell and those guys, and those guys that is, is playing great ball too, you know? So Kevin Willow workouts is definitely I'd say one of the best. Well, in your sophomore season, the the previous group had moved on, and you and Patrick Alda were asked to take on more significant roles supporting uh, Jordan Theodore and even Herb Pope back then. Did you have any idea of how yeah. successful that team was going to be bouncing back from the previous year? You know, I thought we were um, a really good team. You know, Patrick was just, you know, getting stronger by the day. You know, uh, it was unbelievable. And I don't know, I felt like we had a lot of success, you know, it was just some games that we had that we let slip. But for the most part, I, I feel like we was a good team and didn't make some noise. You know, it was, it was just we couldn't get over that hill. We just went in some games and, you know, we had some injury problems that was happening. So, you know, it was just kind of, you know, just basketball. You know, with basketball, you deal with injuries and stuff like that. That's out of your control. I thought you guys were more than just a good team. That team raced out to a 15-2 and start. You guys got out of the gate in the Big East at 4-1, and and you even cracked the top 25. But th then there was a game that yeah, stood yeah. out in my mind. You guys went on the road. You lost a one-point loss at USF. Theodore is at the line at the end of the game. You shoot in the front end of a one-and-one, -on -one and unfortunately misses it, and that was basically the end of the ball game. And it kind of snowballed into this six-game losing streak, which to me was the beginning of what is now known as the annual Seton Hall January swoon. So walk us through. Tell, tell me what happened during that stretch. Why couldn't the team kind of get out of the funk after that loss? Good question. I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, just that game, you know, we all – held uh, uh like our uh, heads up high but you know, I, don't, I don't know i just felt like 
you know, the games just got rough. You know, I mean, like, we all had a lot of confidence. I feel like our, our team confidence was pretty high. I remember that game like it was yesterday, you know. And, you know, it, it definitely hurt, you know. It hurt all of us. With Jordan missing that shot, you know, I, I don't know, like, I feel like it, like it hurt him too, you know, because he holds himself to a higher standard, you know, and, and him being our captain. I don't know. I, yeah, it was definitely a snowball effect. And like you said, it's probably was that January spoon with me all. <laughs> it wasn't all bad that season. I mean, you came into your own that season. You you were a beast. You, you averaged double figures in scoring. Yeah, I think you had over six boards a game, and you were the first Big East player ever to lead the nation in steals. You know, one of the great things about yeah. watching you was this, was your defensive presence, man. It was almost like... You were so strong off defensively; they were just going to lead in the offense. What What's your secret to your success? I say just you know just I say my secret for success on on the defensive end just you know just me being active. You know, one thing I was good at and still good at to this day was you know I could make it look like I'm not watching. You know what's going on. I you know and the offender would think he got that pass. And you know with me having long arms and me being fast and being able to move so quick, you know I could snooze and then just boom, beat her and steal that ball. You know so, you know it was it was just kind of like a, a tricky game I played. You know and it was something that I that I love doing. I love doing it to this day. I loved it. You would always exactly the way you described it. Kind of sneak up on the opponent when you made that steal. You. You had a lot of what I would call, or Kevin calls, the pick six deal, where you, know, you take it the length of the court for the two points on the other side. And it kind of felt like that was the theme of that team. You guys snuck up on a lot of people. I was loving it. You guys knocked off UConn in a blowout. After that January swoon, you guys bounced back and beat uh, number nine Georgetown uh, at home. There were some really exciting moments at, as that season progressed. Kind of tell me about some of those highlights. Oh, yeah. It, you know, it, it was definitely good. You know, we had a lot of big-time wins. You know, like you said, UConn was definitely a good one for us. You, you know, just even though we didn't make it to the tournament, you know, just making it to the to the NIT was definitely big for us. You know, we didn't hold our heads. You know, we went in we went into the NIT, you know, looking to win. Yeah, it was definitely good. Like, I, I don't want to end this season on a down note, but, but I got to ask the question. Uh, I felt like after you guys beat Georgetown, you guys were in the tournament. At that point, you guys were 8-8. Eight and eight. You had Rutgers at home. You had DePaul on the road. Two of the bottom teams in the Big East and were like, if they win one more game, they're in the big dance. And then, unfortunately, you guys had two setbacks in those games. Tell us what happened in those two games because it's really not talked about, you know, throughout the history of Seton Hall, what really went down throughout the mindset of the coaching staff and the players when you guys had those setbacks. I, I don't know. I just feel like, you know, it was, you know, as players and, you know, there's players right now at Seton Hall or – just players in general all over the all over the country, the nation. You know, just when you having bad moments in the game, you know, never to hold your head because sometimes when you can hold your head or not have that next play mentality, you know, it could trickle down to you know just having a bad game or you know having a couple bad games. You know, so I just say you know just us not having that next play mentality definitely hurt us, and that's something I learned. You know, just being a professional and you know just getting older, and it definitely helps as an athlete in general. I don't care what sport it is. You took those lessons and you turned it, and again, you went back to your defensive prowess. And, and I always look at you and I said, you know, here's someone that takes pride in his defense, not just someone waiting to play offense again. But you turned that into the biggest defensive player of the year in 2014, and you ended up being the Seton Hall career steals leader. What does those accomplishments mean to you? Uh, it means a lot, you know, and um, to this day I look at that trophy I got, you know, it's some. It's some I carried over, you know, to my professional 
career, you know, with just me, I, I, I really take pride in my defense. You know, I don't like when someone score on me. You know, I can miss 10 jump shots or 10 layups, but as long as I lock in on defense, I'm, I'll be perfectly fine because I know I could make offense off defense. That's my mindset as far as basketball, and I know my role. You can put me on the court with four of the superstars. You know, I'm going to know my role, you know, just to, you know, shoot the open shot, play hard on defense, and, you know, cut hard and just do all the little things that, I feel like people don't like to do. Well, going into your junior and Caesar se senior season, your role definitely did change. I mean, it was clear that you were the go-to leader on the offensive side of the floor as well as the defensive side of the floor for, for the Pirates. I, I know the seasons didn't probably turn out the way that you wanted, but there were some pretty cool moments. I mean, tell me what it felt like to hit the game winner against Nova at the Rock. Oh, man, <laughs> that felt good. You know, like you said, you know, I knew coming in, you know, defense was my main thing, but I challenged myself, you know, and I worked out every day, you know, with Coach Willer and with Grant, Coach Grant, you know, just working on my offense, you know, working on just getting a lot of repetition on my three-pointers and ball handling, and, you know, and it kind of showed. I, like, I really preach and believe that, you know, if you practice hard and work hard every day, you know, it's going to translate to the game, man. You know, and I can remember that play, you know, with Tom, Tommy getting, um, you know, the steal, and, you know, I just had a lot of confidence, you know, with, uh, I said I wasn't going for no two-pointer, you know, so I stepped back for the three. <laughs> oh, they, they had no idea what hit him, man. Like you said, Tommy stole the ball, passed it over to you. Felt like you were, like, fading out of bounds when you hit that shot. And I was like, bang! Yeah, yeah, I knew that ball was going in before I got it. <laughs> that, was that was definitely just my confidence, 100%. Well, the following season uh, against Nova again, but this time at the Garden, it was like deja vu all over again, except this time it was Sterling Gibbs hitting that buzzer beater. And then, and then you had uh, yeah, you yeah. guys running around. Uh, you had a shot on ESPN's uh, front page that day. Oh, oh uh, God. Jared Cena was, like, doing circles around the court, was he not? <laughs> yeah, he was. He didn't know where to run. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you were done playing at Seton Hall, there were, there was a lot of talk of you going pro. Actually, there was there were some articles. I, I, I remember one in one of the New York newspapers saying that this that they thought you were going to be the first Seton Hall Pirate to be drafted in 10 years. Now, that didn't necessarily happen, but you did get a lot of play in some of the G League and other places, correct? Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, so what was the difference between playing at the college level, playing against the NBA-type players in the G League? Um, it, was, it was definitely a challenge. You know, I feel like at the next level, one thing that I had in my advantage, you know, was my, you know, my length and, you know, me being known for defense, you know, me proving not only, you know, being known for it, but me just proving it, you know, just me being able to close out with a high hand and keep my balance and being able to slide back and, you know, just being, just being able to guard at the next level, you know, it's, it's more space, you know, it's, it's more physical, you know, the rest lets you play more, you know, and, and at that level, you know, you're playing with older, older people, you know, me coming in as, as I say, the a younger dog, you know, I'm playing against adults at this at, at this stage, you know, so it, it was it was definitely um, a challenge, but it was a challenge that, you know, that I was looking forward to. Well, I got a chance to see you play in some of the G League games, and what really impressed me is, you know, I, we expected your defense to still be there, but your three-point shooting really kind of started to elevate to a different level. You'd shot about 36% for your career at the college distance, but throughout your two years in the G League, you were shooting close to 40%. And I mean, obviously, that's a that's a longer distance. More guys are in your face. What did you do to kind of elevate your shooting ability compared to where you were at in Seton Hall? Um, I just say, you know, just me being a student of the game, you know, me willing to learn and wanting to grow and wanting to get better, you know, 
after practice. I'm always looking at film. Uh, my first year with Sioux Falls, those, you know, like the coaches definitely helped me get to where I'm at as far as, you know, with me being able to shoot the three at a high level. And, you know, it's just me knowing what I do well. I try to limit me shooting a lot of threes off the dribble because I knew I wasn't that comfortable doing it. You know, so I excel at doing what I do best with, you know, running the floor, spacing it out, being ready, shot ready in, in the corner. You know, and I feel like, you know, if you're confident and if you're preparing, if you're ready, you know, nine times out of ten, that ball is going to go in. And once I mastered that, it was definitely a success. Well, that's what I was telling Tom. Like, Fuquan's developing his game to a point where he kind of fits the NBA mold of a three-and-three type player. He's kind of got that long wingspan. He's very aggressive on the defensive end, can guard multiple positions. And then, unfortunately, you kind of had some knee issues. So kind of talk to us about how your rehab and your knee issues are kind of slowed you down in your path to the NBA. It definitely slowed me down. It, I didn't really start to feel any type of pain for this past year. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely slowed me down. You know, just me not being able to play this past year, you know, it, kind of hurt me because this is my first time ever being away from the game this long was it was it something that happened during the final season i mean was there something dramatic that happened or is this just um, overall wear and tear uh, I, I, I definitely think it's overall wear and tear you know you know as athletes this is something that happens a lot you know this is just not something that happened to me you know i, I read a lot about it i'm just trying to learn a lot about my body and about what i'm dealing with yeah, so it's definitely some. I definitely say it's wear and tear. Um, you know, as a basketball player, you know, you suffer injuries and stuff like that. But the severe rate that I'm in right now is is pretty unfortunate. Well, I can speak for Tom and myself, and I probably could speak for most of the Seton Hall community. We would love to see you kind of get back, get your your health where you need to be, and, and have that shot to kind of have the success at the ultimate stage of the NBA level. I know right now you're in a process of trying to raise some funds through a GoFundMe page to kind of get the necessary treatment you need for your knee. If For all the listeners out there, can you talk about how they can donate to be a part of that process? Yeah, well, currently, like you said, I got the GoFundMe up. I try, you know, I try to get 905 Raptors to help out, you know, because that's why I was with this past year. But the injury didn't occur with them during the season, so... I kind of respect their decision as far as, you know, not, you know, treating me well. But, um, and then, like, this is another thing. You know, as far as life, life kind of hits you, too, at the same time, you know. And, you know, me being older and me having a family and me not being in New Jersey. I actually live in Georgia right now. So, I mean, I feel like if I was in New Jersey, I'd definitely be at Senior Hall, you know. And I'm sure, you know, I'd be able to get with Tony and, um, you know, just get some treatment, you know. And with, with my GoFundMe, you know, I'm just trying to raise some money and, just to start the process. You know, I don't I don't feel like with my injury, it's that severe due to the fact that I could still run, I could still jump, and I could still walk perfectly fine. You know, so I feel like that's definitely a plus with my situation. You know, so I think I'd be healthy and, and I could be able to get back out there and be 100%. I think I'd be 110%. I feel like right now I'm at like a 65, 70, but, you know, at the high level is only amount of time that you can go at that at that percentage, you know. So I just want to be 110 and, you know, make a push and just make a push for the NBA or at the highest level overseas or G League, whatever. I, you know, I'm just trying to get back on that court. Right, and we already just saw recently what happens when players try to take the court when they're not 100%. You know, their ancillary injuries can come through and really hurt you in different ways. So we're all rooting for you. 
You know, you mentioned Seton Hall. How much do you follow the team these days? Do you have an opportunity to watch them play on TV? Yeah, I do. Definitely now. You know, with me being overseas um, a couple years, you know, it's tough. You know, different times and different time zones and stuff like that. But, you know, this past year, me being home, I was definitely able to focus more on Seton Hall and what they was doing. How were your times overseas? What what, what was your favorite place? We keep, we keep asking everybody. We had Jerry Walker on. We had Donald Copeland. They told us, what was your favorite place overseas to play? My favorite place to play, I would say Israel. Every game was, you know, was packed out fans there you know I, I, I feel like it was pretty cool how they had two sets of fans you know I mean it, it felt like college in a sense you know they had like a student section then they had the people who was you know just watching the game and cheering on you know but I played I played against Tom played against Tom Lyon and you know and, and like the fans there you know they screaming in a different language you know it kind of <laughs> turned me on you know <laughs> So, it so made me say, play so harder. Packed house. What? How many people are in attendance in a game in Israel or any of the different places you play? Every game was different. You know, like you had, you, you go play in Tel Aviv. It's, it's more of an NBA arena, or so if you go playing like where I played at Nestiona, where it was like a smaller gym. You know, so it, you get the perks of playing in like a bigger gym with a like you know a big club or you know a smaller club with a littler gym. You know, so. I thought now, and, and I told this to my players, you know, I mean, to my teammates, I feel like, you know, it was like different styles of like, you know, different game styles, depending on who you played, just because, you know, like the court just felt different. Sometimes it felt big, sometimes it felt small. Foo, that, Foo, we really want you to make it back and we want to just give everybody the opportunity to know where to go. We want everybody to go to GoFundMe.com and look for Help Foo Return to Basketball and help Foo figure out how he can get back on that court. So, Foo, one last thing we do before we let our guests go home is walk the plank. We've got five rapid-fire questions for you. We're going to ask you to give us five rapid-fire answers. Don't think about it too long. You don't have to explain it and just go from the top of your head. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, question number one. Most points you have ever scored in a game at any level? 38. Biggest win as a pirate? Villanova. Most intimidating road environment you've ever played in? Louisville. Toughest opponent you have ever gone up against as an individual player? Campbell Walker. Greatest pirate you have ever seen play in your lifetime? Jeremy Izzo. Bonus question. Do the 2019-2020 Seton Hall Pirates win the Big East regular season title? Yes. There we go. Congratulations, Foo. You've walked the plank. Hey, I'm glad you mentioned Jeremy Hazell. I don't think he gets enough love, man. I think if he doesn't have that injury in, that, in his senior season, we might be talking a neck-and-neck -neck race for most points scored ever uh, as a Pirate. I think he absolutely does. I mean, he was literally on track to kind of knock out Terry's record. I don't think his team's had the kind of success that Terry's team's have. Or for that matter, Miles Powell as he chased the record. But he, as I said yeah. earlier, he was yeah. electric, right? I mean, you saw him firsthand. Exactly, and I, and I, and, I, and that's why I say him because you know I've seen it firsthand. I played with him, and I feel like the things he was doing was unbelievable. Now Miles doing what Miles doing at this level, and him being you know how old he is, he's young, you know, so he he got a lot of time up his hand, you know, so and he's doing it early on, you know, so it's pretty impressive. <laughs> Might have to reconsider, in the, you know, in the early years. <laughs> You're not allowed to take your answers back. Yeah, Walk the yeah, plank. Answers are final. Oh, thanks so much, Fu, for spending some time with us. We really appreciate your time, man. No, thank you. It was a pleasure, man. I truly appreciate it, man. You know, it's, it's all love on my end. You know, it's seeing whole for life. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcasts, which include interviews with former players, 
Donald Copeland, Desi Rodriguez, Angel Delgado, and Jerry Walker. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. 